folks. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I am Dr. Scott and I'm here with my bestie. Dr. Shiloh, we are so excited to bring you another crossover episode. We have not done a cross, a true crossover in a while. And today we are bringing you part one of a crossover with the men from the End of Watch podcast. Yeah, it's this is pretty amazing of an opportunity for us to work with these law enforcement that are not only giving a completely different perspective of the work that they've done, but also they're at a different point in their careers right? where they really have the ability to speak openly about everything that they've been through. And these guys are raw. I mean, I, I've come away from this. I mean, I, ha- I love their show to begin with, but now that I got the visuals and the interaction with them, I'm just continually impressed. And this is, what we're doing is coming right on the heels of our essential uh, employee and crisis negotiation episodes. And, you know, we're going to continue and hope to continue and go further in depth. And what I think is really an important conversation regarding mental health and, and that's the wellness of law enforcement officers. And it's something that needs to be talked about more. I think that our guests, our crossover partners, really nail it on the the head with this conversation. I, I'm really excited about everyone listening to this episode and I can't wait to hear the feedback. Me too. Me too. Yeah. The, the point of like where they are at in retirement. So end of watch is what we say in law enforcement, usually and other sort of first responder type jobs. When you're done with your shift, it's the end of your watch. You have your beginning of watch, you have the end of your watch, but then it also is the end of somebody's career, the end of the entire job. Um, or it's also used when someone is killed in the line of duty as their the day that they died. It's their end of watch. So this is such great timing because this week is natu- National Police Week, which is the, the national celebration to celebrate the life and remember those of those officers that have been killed in the line of duty. And if, if you guys have followed us through social media, you might remember that last year I went to the celebration in Washington, D.C. and went through to a lot of those events. That's when I got to go to Quantico. And it's it's a really somber yet important week to celebrate and remember individuals who have given their life in working in law enforcement. So... The guys at the End of Watch podcast always dedicate one of their episodes to a law enforcement officer lost in the line of duty, and you'll see how they did that for the episode that we did with them. Um, but they just have such a, a wealth of experience, and I love that they are this these like total tough guys, yet they love talking about the challenges for law enforcement officers mentally and psychologically and what the job does to you. So that was right up our alley when you're talking about being exposed to trauma and some of the, just the tragic life issues that come about. Yeah. I I think they should go on tour. And I think after (laughs) I I seriously do, I think after our listeners hear this today, I, I, you know, you'll probably agree with me. I think that for as much as like I've gone to conventions and, and conferences on threat assessment and wellness and all sorts of things like they these guys have a place there to say, this is what happened to us and this is why it happened. And anyway, I just feel it's like very valuable. And, and we hope that this episode is going to give you, our audience, some more insight into our work with law enforcement and mental health 
and our engagement with law enforcement. And, you know, as I've said before, Shiloh and I kind of bookend um, law enforcement agencies. And, you know, we, we think that more information to everyone is just going to help really have a cultural impact on, on, on the way we view in law enforcement. Definitely, definitely. So, so this is part one of the conversation. You can part, find part two on the End of Watch podcast feed and then the entire conversation on their YouTube channel. So please go over there and subscribe if you want to watch us interact. Minus Bootsy because he couldn't get his camera to work. So you can see the, the remaining three of us uh, visually. But go over there and check it out if you just want a nice seamless conversation on their YouTube channel, channel and everything will be linked in our show notes. So please enjoy the cop talk. So excited to be doing this with you guys. This is a crossover uh, in the making for a while. Very cool. We're we're excited and intimidated at the same time because our PhDs have not arrived in the mail yet. (laughs) We are the least intimidating psychologists you'll ever meet, I think. Uh, but this is really cool. So we we have a few friends in common, and you guys recently did uh, Rebecca's podcast dialogue, and we love Rebecca. We've worked with her a lot. Yeah, big fan, big fan. She's she's sharp, very very sharp. Yeah, she's got a natural talent for interviewing. I, I have listened. I've marathoned a bunch of her episodes, and I'm I'm amazed at what she is able to really get her people to share. She's got a talent. It's really got a talent for that. Well, she she had interviewed us without us really knowing that we were interviewed. I didn't realize until about 30 minutes after the interview was done. I was like, wait a second. She meant to do that. <laughs> She's like, well, thanks for coming. And uh, <laughs> well, I, I think um, us getting to meet you guys uh, through her and some other like random coincidence people that we know in the, the small world of law enforcement and now podcasting is um, a really cool thing. And I, I'm grateful that you guys asked us to be a part of your show. And I think we have a lot of interesting topics to touch on today. Absolutely. Hey, Dr. Shallow, can you and Dr. Scott, just for our audience, just give a quick background to yourself so our, our audience knows where you're coming from? Yeah, of course. Let's do that. And then we'll have you do the same. Um, so um, I'm a forensic psychologist in Los Angeles, and I currently work as a law enforcement psychologist. So all of my clients now are police officers as well as civilians uh, at the agency that I work for. And I provide frontline clinical services for them, therapy, couples therapy, group therapy, as well as uh, any debriefings uh, that are needed after uh, officer-involved shooting or any critical incidents, traumatic incidents, and then provide a ton of training in lots of different ways and consult to the different divisions based on whatever it is that they need some help out with, whether it's something like morale or, you know, people really not knowing how to handle this age of the pandemic, like we're going to talk about a bit today. So that's, that's primarily what I've been doing for the last three years. Uh, prior to that, I was working in sex offender treatment for about a decade. So I was working side by side with probation and parole with the individuals coming out of prison and helping with their monitoring. And I was doing a lot of their treatment and assessment. 
Um, but before life as a psychologist, I was a cop. So I was on the job for seven years at a small agency here in Southern California and basically worked patrol that entire seven years. I, I did some background investigations and I was the, the terrorism liaison officer, but I went back to school while I was on patrol. So patrol just worked out well for me to go to school uh, during the week because I could just work weekends and nights. Um, but I come from a law enforcement family. My, my mom, dad, stepdad, brother, and husband are all law enforcement officers. I have one brother that's a fireman. I don't know what happened with that guy, but... Um, oh, boy. <laughs> how dare you get this thing with the hose draggers? <laughs> I know. I've heard you guys talk about it. <laughs> draggers. Uh, yeah. So so that's, that's a bit about me and my background and just what feels relevant to fit into our conversation today. Awesome. So I... Um... Shiloh and I met in our internships. I came from a couple of decades working in entertainment in various uh, positions out here in Los Angeles. And I um, went back to grad school. I was ready for, uh, as they say out here, entertainment is a harsh mistress. So it was a ton of fun. I had a, a blast. I met amazing people. I did amazing things. I worked on amazing projects. But then I, you know, was hitting like that point where you go, I probably need a retirement plan. And um, that wasn't happening in entertainment. So I considered going back to grad school and I, you know, thought I was going to be like a private practice clinician. And I got into a forensic doctoral program that was like this 50-50 clinical psychology and family forensic uh, program. And I just, you know, I, I immersed myself in it and it was like this whole new chapter of my life, which was fantastic. I, um, my internship is where Shiloh and I met. We, we met at the sex offender treatment uh, internship. We worked 40 hours a week sitting back to back to each other and facilitating groups together and conferring together. And then she stayed at that agency. I went and worked at the state in uh, California Department of Corrections for several years and then came and worked uh with the uh, sheriff's department as, um, I mean, working for a department of mental health, working in the jails in LA County. And after that became a law enforcement psychology, a psychologist for a different agency than Shiloh was involved with uh, right now and was there for a while. And now I work in tandem in a co-responder model with um, a police agency in Southern California. So we address escalating dangers in the community. We follow up and make sure that um, subjects slash clients have the the resources that they need. And while we're doing that, trying to help them, we're also trying to investigate, regulate, mitigate, and address any increasing risk of violence in the community. And that can span from nascent terrorism, uh, becoming involved in, you know, uh, toxic group think, which there's a lot of that out here in Southern California, um, and doing what we can to de-escalate, um, intervene when we can. We've got a lot of resources we kind of put in people's ways um, and offer to them. And it's a fantastic job. It's like I, 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 every day I go to work and I can't believe that I'm lucky enough to have this job and work with amazing people and great detectives that have made me a better psychologist because of the, what I get exposed to through working with them. Um, so yeah, that's how I got here. And then, you know, it was Shiloh's, with Shiloh's idea to start a podcast and, 
it uh, it kind of it took off in ways that we'd never expected. So we're having a lot of fun with that. Very cool. That's such such an interesting angle of looking at it. You know, when you're talking about that, you know, toxic group thinking and going at it the way you guys are going at it. It's a, I mean, that's fascinating. It's actually kind of scary to think that the rest of the country hasn't caught on to that. Yeah, you know, I mean, as as law enforcement, I'm sure you guys already get this. I mean, you already get that you see a perspective and a window of the world that the vast majority of people of the of the population they're never going to see that. You know, they're just not going to see it. Now, and the danger in being law enforcement is that if you allow that to be your only perspective, you're setting yourself up for a lot of troubles you know, down the road, if you don't live a balanced <laughs> life, you know, you are. Amen. Uh, it's, it's a very, it's a very uh, dangerous tunnel vision. And, and that goes, so, you know, where I come from is basically, I was a patrolman in a small town, uh, my hometown in Windsor, Connecticut. And then I joined a gang called the U.S. Army. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I spent five years in the army doing a, a, a lot of really cool things, got stationed in Germany went over to Kosovo on a peacekeeping mission. Then uh, somebody started a war and I went and played in the desert for a little while with that. And then I was stationed at Fort Stewart, which is right outside of Savannah, home of the mighty third infantry division. And uh, when I was getting out of the army, I applied to Savannah PD. They had just merged the city and County, uh, came to the department. Uh, I worked patrol for a while for a quick little while, and then uh, got onto a crime suppression unit, which I've written about extensively in my book, The Expanded Patrol Operation, but it was basically addressing high crime areas and that kind of stuff. But it, it really exposed me to what was really going on in the city of Savannah and uh, you know different techniques. But I learned a lot about intel gathering, which is how I actually first met Lou. I was working on an organized crime drug enforcement task force and then wind up leaving Savannah to go out to a more rural area out around Fort Stewart, a lot of soldiers, a lot of gangs, a lot of different type of stuff. But, you know, anywhere you have people, you got drugs, you got problems, you got all that kind of stuff. But I was part of a narcotics task force where I worked even closer with Lou and a guy named Toby Taylor. And we worked a storefront operation out in Statesboro, Georgia. And then after being there for a while, I came back to Savannah when a different chief came in and went right back to the thing. We started a new OCDF case, focusing basically, my most of my career was gangs, guns, and drugs. But then towards the end of that operation, they moved me over to the homicide, worked homicide for about two years before ultimately ending my career with a beautiful DUI, which, you know... When you guys were talking about what you do, I'm like, shoot, where were you, you know, five years ago when I, I, I could have used you. But, you know, yeah. five years ago, mentally, I would not have been open to it. You know, I, I was not in that mindset of, oh, my God, yeah. I sure. need help. I was more in, you know, whatever, man, I got this. I can handle this. But it taught me a lot about, you know, how not dealing with your problems will eventually get you, you know, and, and that's. That's how Lou and I wound up here doing this podcast, saying, look, we were legitimate uh, in our field of law enforcement, but our actions and behaviors and the, you know, we were really good at our jobs, but we were really bad at just being regular people. We were really bad at it. And, and it led to, you know, a lot of destruction in our lives. But 
that's why we're doing what we're doing now. Yeah. You know, just to, to jump in for a second, because Shiloh and I both work on, we, we, we book into the same agents, uh, law enforcement agency, and we both engage in what you'd call psychoeducation and exactly what you're talking about, bringing people up. You know, like, hey, this this is not the only way you have to walk this life and this career. There are alternatives. There are ways you can survive and thrive and have a healthy retirement without a like a massive heart attack two years after you get your pension. And every time I do these lectures and educational um, seminars with law enforcement, I, I started off by saying, look, my goal in talking to you today is to get you to a place where you will start thinking about how to nearly empty that pension benefits. I want you to live till you're 95 and still kicking. And I don't want you to have a coronary two years after you retire because you've been such a hard charger for 30 years that you didn't take care of yourself. No, it's like, it's like that tunnel vision you were just talking about. You know, I, mm-hmm. I was in that tunnel and had there been mental health professionals around me at the time, I really, I mean, being super honest with myself, I would have had a difficult time listening to you and believing what you're saying. But but now that I've been through what I've been through and, well, been through what I put myself through and seen, you know, the benefits of that type of assistance, I wish me now could go back and talk to me then and say, hey, dude, <laughs> pull your head out of your ass and, and <laughs> start opening your mind. But again, that tunnel vision is, is dangerous. But Hey, yeah. look, you, you survived being a Yankee that moved to Savannah. <laughs> I, I have all the admiration because I'm from Alabama and we don't take to Yankees too well. So you got some strong stuff in you to survive that. I'm still down here. So, you know, the, the survival is I'm still scratching every day. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Dr. Scott, I love Alabama. I finished my career in Huntsville. That's where that's where I'm from. Yeah. I was putting time out for my last year and I was at the uh, Redstone Arsenal there uh, at the National Center for Explosives and Training Research which I know nothing about. I'll be kind of uh, finish it out over there. And uh, I loved it, man. I loved Alabama. I loved Huntsville. Great place. Well, Huntsville, thank you. And I got to tell you, I mean, Alabama, the whole state is beautiful. There's a lot of, there's a lot of difficult things down there and there's a lot of inequality. There's, you know, there are some parts of it, the, the really poor sections look like, you know, they match third world poverty. But I'll tell you, Huntsville is an amazing place to have grown up in. You know, one of the things that when I, when I moved out and I lived in Chicago and lived around the country and around the world, and when I would say I was from Huntsville, everybody always knew it as Rocket City because, yep. you know, when after World War II, basically all the European brain was pulled into our space program. So we had this, you know, for this sleepy southern town, we had this amazing influx of brains and and intellect from all over the world. And it's made a difference. It made for a great culture there that I think that's what you were probably picking up on. Fun fact, Dr. Scott, the highest concentration of PhDs in the world lives in Huntsville, Alabama. I, I consider me schooled. I did not know that. Wow. Wow. Go figure, right? Yeah, I can believe <laughs> Sal, it. Sal, can we get um, some of your background for our audience, please? Yeah, I, uh, I'm retired. I, I was on the job for 26 years. I started started my career as an INS agent, which is now ICE, in Los Angeles in 1991. And uh, what a great place to learn how to be a, a cop, Los Angeles. And, and What an interesting I, time, too, early oh 90s. My Lord. I'll tell you what, it was, it was definitely the place to be to learn how to be a cop. And I was lucky enough. I, I actually did my first six months in L.A. County Jail 
uh, when you were a new agent, they they put you on the release line at L.A. County to interview all outgoing uh, foreign-born inmates to determine alienage and deportability. It was where I, I really, if you were a non-native uh, Spanish speaker, it's where you where you really got your Spanish down to be fluent. And it's also where you learned about the gangs and about the culture out there. Then I was lucky enough to be on a uh, LAPD ATF INS task force in Rampart. I was on the Rampart task force. And, you know, I was out there. I, I was on the streets and worked during the riots, the whole OJ thing. It's just the early 90s. I was in my my early 20s, and it was a just wow. what a such time. a great place yeah, to, to be a cop and to learn how to be a cop. But while I was on that task force with the ATF guys, I, you know, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work undercover. There wasn't a lot of opportunity for a big Italian guy with uh, ICE to work undercover. And, uh, you know, it was the ATF guys who were the cowboys. They were doing all the undercover shit. Just even even at the academy when I saw those guys, you know, we all had had to have our shaved and our haircuts and all that. And, you know, the ATF class would walk in and look like, you know, the Hells Angels in, uh, <laughs> in the lunchroom. And we're, everyone was like, man, that's, that's the place to be. But it's a hard agency to get into because it's small. And uh, I went... I was in LA about five and a half years, and uh, had a, I just had a great time. But I'm an East Coaster. I want to get back to the East Coast. I took a short stint with the Marshals in New York before I could finally get on with ATF. I got on with ATF, and I spent the next two decades basically working undercover. I did every kind of undercover case there was. I never said no. Murder for hire, outlaw biker gangs, uh, mafia infiltration, street gangs, you know, just nickel and dime gun buys, drug buys, whatever it was. I, I was, I became addicted to it. I loved it. You know, I, I ran it really hard. Um, I never stopped. I never took a break. Like I said, I wish I could have talked to both of you guys about a decade ago. You know, my career, I did retire. My career didn't end well. I ended up under investigation by OIG. Bootsy was there. We kind of went through a thing at the same time, even though I, you know, there was no wrongdoing found in the end. It pretty much ruined me. Uh, I had run my family life into the ground, and I knew it was time to retire and kind of get to know my kids and my family. Sure, sure. So how many years did you do total? 26. Wow. Wow. He's got yeah. the coolest kids in the world, by the way. Well, that yep. paid off. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what, um, what typically do you like to focus on in your podcast, End of Watch? I'll tell you what, we, Boots and I, we have, we like to have different kind of guests. I mean, we've had uh, a lot of undercover agents, um, guys who have written books, Jay Dobbins, who wrote No Angel, Big Jack Garcia, who's going to be on again tomorrow for the second time, who infiltrated the Gambino crime family. Wow. He's the only FBI guy that Bootsy and I are on speaking terms with. Yeah, we try not to talk to those guys too much. You know, but we, we've also had, you know, guys like uh, Chief Melvin Russell from Baltimore, Baltimore Police Department for kind of a, he's more of a community-based policing guy to get a different perspective. But we also have had guys who've been convicted. One guy who was definitely wrongly convicted and did three years in prison for one trade financial crime. Wow. We like to bring up different aspects, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the justice uh, system. You know, we, we had two episodes with the Steve Murphy and Javier Pena, the DEA guys from Narcos, uh, who were great. We had Eddie Gallagher, the Navy SEAL, to bring, you know, some military perspective on when he was going through all of his stuff. So we like to kind of bounce around military law enforcement, but we, we like to bring up, you know, not just... 
you know, what is right with law enforcement and our justice system, but what is wrong with it? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Like you said, the, the ugly, whether it's, it's the hard truth or however you want to phrase it. In a way at the end of our career, Boots and I both were kind of on the other side of it for a little while. So we have a unique. We we got to see uh, the criminal justice system play out and I never would think, but you know, Lou and I were actually kind of ignorant about the whole criminal justice system from the other end because of the way we, you know, I, I like to say the way we played the game. I never could fathom a prosecutor fabricating facts in a prosecution. I could never figure out the way we made cases. They never had to take a political end on it. You know, you, you either we brought the facts, they presented the facts in, in, in court, and people were either convicted or acquitted on that. In our right. cases, they were usually, uh, in, and I'm not blowing our horns, but— I, I never lost a case in trial, and, and neither did Lou. But again, that was based on absolute fact. I never would have conceived that prosecution would let politics or anything like that until I went through it myself. And then the way I see now, prosecutions being jaded, evidence, exculpatory evidence not being shown, and you know, just flat out lying in a courtroom, which is inconceivable to me. But now that we've been through what we've been through, we've seen it on several occasions. We looked at Eddie Gallagher's case. You know, another guy we had, an American hero, Victor Avila, ICE agent who was shot and his partner, Jaime Zapata, were killed down in Mexico. But to see what's happened with their killers and their trial here in the United States, I mean, it's appalling. Yeah. But those are things in our career we never even would have considered that because we played the game very honestly. You know, we came in, if if we caught the bad guy, we presented the facts. If we knew he was a bad guy and we couldn't catch him, we didn't present false facts. We waited until we got the right evidence. And, and you know, the thing about bad guys is you can always catch them later. Sure. Yeah. You know, the perspective growing up in a, a family of law enforcement, you know, I, I sort of had that view as well, that everything, you know, works out the way it's supposed to, and the criminal justice system is the best in the world and is just. But I, even still in childhood, had a family member who was in law enforcement and was prosecuted federally. And it rocked my world. I mean, it, it, I think for my age, it was really hard to understand, but also just the contradiction of, wait a minute, I've believed this other part my whole life. And now I'm seeing this really nasty underbelly of it. And my family member was treated very poorly, including the rest of the family by the feds. And ironically, (laughs) after I left college, I said, I want to go to the FBI and I want to make it a better place. And I will never do that to anybody. So um, I did test for the FBI. I was going through the process actually uh, when Scott well, and I were, we're very in glad you didn't make it. <laughs> it work out. I'm way too smart to be in here. Um, so, yes, I, I decided to be a psychologist at the last minute instead. And I just Much loved, better choice. loved the work that I was doing. But it, you know, you think it would have totally soured me. Um, and I just thought, this is bullshit. I, I can be a better agent than that. Um, no, and, yeah. and the thing is, it's crazy to see that. But I, I just, I do want to say, I still strongly believe in support it's the best in the world you know I, I've, I've seen the criminal justice yeah. system in, in a few other countries yeah. 
and uh, we are leaps and bounds ahead. It's not yeah. a perfect. I'm glad system. you said that because that it's absolutely true. It's that it doesn't mean that it doesn't have massive, massive flaws and injustices, but it is still, especially for those of us that have had the opportunity to live in different parts of the world. It's like, we've got it great here compared mm-hmm. to other places. And yet if we look at the whole system, like we were talking about earlier, that, that narrow field of vision, if you don't, if you're not exposed to the things that all of us are exposed to and see a bigger picture, you don't understand that it's very easy for the public to think of law enforcement uh, or even mental health. They have they have a very concrete and very black and white view of what that career means. And what they don't see is the difficulty and the repercussions and the challenges of staying in the in your field of work and the sequelae down the line if you don't have someone like us. Like you were saying, you didn't have the opportunity, or even if you had had the opportunity, you wouldn't have you know, you wouldn't have opened up to us. I mean, I will say most people that are trained being law enforcement psychologists or mental health, we're pretty sneaky and we're good at it and we find a way in and we're really unobtrusive in the way that we create relationships because we're doing it. Yeah. Are we being manipulative? Yeah. But we're trying to manipulate you toward a better emotional health state. But it's it's the same, it's the same thing, Lou, you know, it's the same thing we did you know, professionally, we manipulated the bad guys to get them to tell us things they never wanted to tell us. It's another example of what the rest of the world doesn't know that this is the way things work. Yeah, you know? no, and, and the funny thing about that, I, I think we're seeing that a lot in, it, it's funny, but not funny. You know, with all the COVID-19 stuff going on, you know, I, I think the United States, you know, if you watch Facebook, everybody went from being law enforcement experts to now being medical experts. Everybody's oh, yeah. a doctor, you know, mind oh, yeah. you. But everybody knows everything. And I don't and I don't think mental health is any different in that. Of course, you know, oh, oh, I know how to treat that. This is, you know, if they're doing this, you need to do like right. you know, if you don't have a leg to stand on, you know, my father taught me if you don't know, keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Yeah, I, I there's a lot of I mean even in in the field of mental health, you know, one of the, on one hand, it's very interesting to see a bunch of highly trained, really good therapists start to argue because it's a really different experience. Okay, I can see their perspective or I can see how they have formed that perspective. I don't agree with it. How do I make my point known? And it's, it's a, it can be a you know a very interesting experience, but that's not something that the rest of the world does is everybody wants everybody wants concrete answers to things. And that's why that's why you have people ending up drinking bleach and Lysol. Because this is disturbing, <laughs> you know, like because they're doctors, they're medical doctors, so. right? You know, it's like, well, I, I heard, I read it, I heard it on YouTube. The lack hey, of critical thinking. YouTube stuff. is always a very credible source. <laughs> well, That's right. Yeah, like I said, you know, you guys, and and we talked about this with uh, Marla Friedman, who's a great psychologist out in uh, Chicago and works with a great uh, psychologist and a great human being. Yes, but uh, you know, if you know, a couple decades ago. It was it was a joke to all of us, you know, because if you were undercover for a certain amount of time or whatever, you they would send you to see the ATF uh, psychologist afterward, and they didn't they weren't ATF employees they were just contracted by the agency and uh, you know it was kind of like a joke between the guys and but I tell you what it, it's not a joke no one's laughing anymore after uh, you know all the suicides uh, yeah all yeah the, the suicides yeah. of guys I know you know all the guys who have 
who and, and girls who have just run their lives into the ground and, and made train wrecks out of their personal lives. You know, no one's laughing anymore. Um, yeah. Well, and and that setup that you're talking about, if you go every you know, six months or a year to see a doctor, you don't, you don't have a rapport built with that person and you're jumping in for an hour and what are you really going to tell them? And, you know, it's up to us to find a better way because it is such a subculture. And I love that where I work and, you know, I'm sorry, we're being so like cryptic for your audience. Our audience is used to it that we don't talk about where we work, but, but the agency I work for has been around for 50 years with their psych department. And we have worked hard to fully embed ourselves. Like I walk around the station once a week, just like making my rounds. Hey, you know, so people can get to know me. And then that's actually where I get most of my self-referred clients. They call up and they say, Hey, I want to, I want to see Dr. Shiloh because I know her, like I'm familiar with her. Um, or they'll be sent in for some reason. And then they choose to stay on because we have built a rapport beyond, you know, whatever they got in trouble for or the shooting or whatever. But it's it's really up to us to figure out how can we get out in front of you guys to have you have exposure to us. So you know how there's like with President Obama's 21st century um, policing that came out and looking at the different pillars, you know, part of that was law enforcement being a little bit more transparent to the public to gain their trust. And I feel like we have to sort of do the same as psychologists. Like, how can I get you to see me as a human being, like humanize the badge, I'm humanizing, I don't know, the couch or whatever, whatever a psychologist has. But if they see me as a person and not just this doctor, um, it, then I can get in there. And I feel like I've, I've, I've had definitely an advantage having a law enforcement background. I'm the first psychologist at my department that has worked in law enforcement. And so once people hear that, I can physically see it on their face that they just like let their guard down. That's a, uh, that's a huge feather in your cap. It's been so much more useful than I even thought it was going to be. I mean, it's made a world of difference sometimes. One of the most effective undercover guys in the country. And again, hindsight's twenty twenty. So in 2007 was Statesboro, Lou? Yes. So 2007, I'm looking back on it now. Then wasn't even a blip on the radar. Didn't whatever. But Lou was injured. Okay. He was hurt. I don't know what it was, uh, but his back was messed up. His back, and remember, your, I think your arms were messed up. Yep. This guy, I would watch this guy, okay? He would be in the, in the storefront, and I was in the cover room. So my responsibilities were basically to watch what was happening, you know, and if one of the guys pulled a gun or something like that, the, the ultimate thing was to rush in and, and do all that. But the more important part was we're identifying the guys. We're collecting the evidence. We're putting together, okay, well, this guy came in with that guy and making, you know, doing the intelligence part of the investigation. But I'm watching Sal on camera with TC and Red, and they're dealing with these guys and doing it. And he is moving and acting just like a bad guy. Nothing. You know, you wouldn't know there was anything going on at all. So they would close up the shop and leave. And I would wait 30 to 45 minutes, depending on what was going on, and go, maybe once a week I would catch up with them because I'd be going far west and Sal and TC would be going back to Savannah. But we, I'd have like paperwork or evidence or something to turn over to them. 
And of course we didn't want to be seen together. So I'd wait 45 minutes. I went and I remember meeting them at a gas station and the dude who was on camera for the eight hours that day, you know, joking, kind of half-ass wrestling, playing pool, sitting, dealing with these bad guys is curled up in the back seat of a car because he can't move because his back is that badly hurt. Right? But you never would have seen that in the operation. Wow. So he's acting so, so much that he's overcoming a physical ailment so much. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, you guys, I can't well, see him on the camera. That, yeah. Yeah. But you but, see and, a guy who's a mountain of a man curled up in the fetal position in the back seat of a car. And I was just thinking to myself, how the hell do you work all day long? If, if your back's hurting that bad, I'm like, mentally, what the hell are you doing? And that's a, a physical representation. And that is happening every day with people with psychological injuries that they're expecting them to be out there and do their job. And I remember, I think it was, it was just when I was coming into psychology, finishing up school and I had been in my second OIS and I really wanted to start diving into the research about traumatic stress symptoms because I had felt some of those firsthand. And I ended up starting to teach to law enforcement about here's signs and symptoms of what's normal to feel after traumatic situation. And just by educating you, you're actually less likely to develop full-blown PTSD because you don't think, oh my God, I'm going crazy. Am I supposed to feel this? You realize that it's normal. And then when you start, yeah. And then like, oh, I don't want anybody to know this. Right. Right. Not getting support for it. So I, I was working for a company, um, some former military guys that were putting together, you know, these these trainings, and they went to a local sheriff's academy here in Southern California to propose having my talk then, because how great to have it when these people are just starting out, so they can learn this and carry it throughout their career, and they were turned down and said. No, we don't want them to know what the signs and symptoms are because what if we then have everybody out and we need people mobilized? So I I was blown away. I'm like, would you send someone out if they had a broken leg? But now your story about Sal is exactly that. Exactly. Exactly. And and the thing is, I don't know if it was in his head. I don't know if it was in his back. I don't don't know if he, you know, whatever that was. But it was just... It's crazy to me now, and that one just sticks out in my head. There, there's a couple others, but that's the one that hits me in my head. So in real life, Lou Velozzi is, uh, you know, I don't even know how old he was at the time, 40-something, okay, with a almost crippling back injury, but the guy could act. He could become Sal, and you'd never even see any of that. That injury, it's gone. It doesn't exist. He's playing so much into that role that physically he's not feeling those things anymore. You know, it, and it, it's just crazy to me, the power of your brain, you know, and then I, you know, relating it to myself, I'm thinking, what the hell was I doing to myself in my head? Like you said, I don't want anybody to know that, you know, I'm having these thoughts or that. Time. It's hard to work on a police department when people think you're crazy. Yeah. Booty, uh, and you know, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Uh, Booty and I talked to 
two of our guests about the same thing on the podcast. We talked to Carlos Canino, who was, uh, he was uh, at the time the special agent in charge of ATF in Los Angeles, field division. Uh, he just retired, but he was a great undercover. And uh, Victor Avila. Westfield State graduate. That's right. Him and Butcher are fellow alumni. Um, Victor Avila. And I don't know if you guys know Victor and his story, but you got to look it up if you don't. He was... Him and uh, Jaime Zapata were ICE agents. They were ambushed by the Zetas cartel on Highway 57 in Mexico. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, so so here was the guy. Well, Carlos had made a statement. He said, he said, you know, when uh, when you're in law enforcement, as a man or a woman in law enforcement, there's never any shame in your game when you have to go to your boss and say, hey, you know, whatever it is, listen, I, I jumping over a fence, I busted my knee, I got to go see a doctor. Or, you know, if you're, you're in a shooting, you get shot or you know, assault, whatever, any kind of injury, there's no shame in the game to go to your supervisor and say, I have to go to a doctor, I'm hurt. But we're kind of trained, especially, you know, amongst each other to not go to our supervisor and say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm fucked up. You know, what I just saw or what I just did or, you know, what just happened to me, I'm fucked up in the head. I, I need... You know, I, I need, you know, because if you have a knee injury, right, you're going to ride the pine for a few totally. months or, or, you know, sit on the bench. But no one wants to say, listen, I, I, I need some help. I'm fucked up. When, when that happened to Victor Avila, he watched the guy next to him take AK-47 rounds and die. He took three rounds himself, surrounded by, I think it was 12 cartel members. And Who didn't did know it until it stopped. Right. And so, and then even at the hospital, he wasn't safe because that's where the cartel finishes people off at the hospital in Mexico. So his trauma continued and uh, he was treated like shit by his agency. He needed help. He needed you guys. But ICE had no protocol. They had nothing set up at the time. You know, they actually ended up telling him, leave the job. uh, Wow. Just retire. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't even eligible to retire, but he actually had to go out wow. on medical. That's why Boots and I, we bring this up all the time with a lot of our guests, uh, how important it is to have people like you guys and how how important it is to let guys know, guys like me and Bootsy, men and women of law enforcement who are, are on the streets and doing all that stuff that you don't have to always be a tough guy, man. And right, and it's okay. not always about, you need options. You need different layers of options and access, you know, because maybe you don't want to go to your supervisor and say, Hey, I need a timeout. I need to go right. see the doc. Right. You need to be able to have access to go totally confidentially. If you don't want anyone to know you need a peer support group because maybe you don't want to talk to a doc, but you want to talk to someone who's been there. Um, or, you know, something totally not even related to the department. If it's, law enforcement specific counseling or just a counselor in your neighborhood. I, I tell people all the time, I, I get that some people aren't going to trust us just because we happen to work for the same department. If you need help, I just want you to get it somewhere. And I don't care where that is. I'm going to be able to understand you better and have that sensitivity to the culture and probably not overreact like a a non-law enforcement psychologist would. But I, I just, at the end of the day, I don't care where people get help, but we need different options for them rather than the phone call we get of, oh, so-and-so was crying in the station today. Right. 
right. and then they get sent. Then that makes it even worse because oh, now it's been, instead of it being like, how can we help? It's, I mean, that was, I've been on the receiving end of that as during my tenure as a law enforcement psychologist of, hey, so-and-so was crying in the station we're sending them over. And, you know, it's I like, yeah, people cry. <laughs> That's a know, normal yeah, reaction. Cry. And hopefully you went over and you said, Hey, come in my office, let's talk. But that's not generally the way it happens. I mean, there is a big shift, but you yeah. know, you were using the medical example beautifully. And what I would add to that is that, you know, think about like what football has been doing until just really the last few years. It's like, yeah, you got sure. your bell rang get the fuck up off the field and get back on. Right. You know, and now we're realizing, oh, 50 years of doing that. And that's why you never hear from that generation of NFL players anymore that they disappear. Right. You never hear from them. And the reason is because traumatic brain injury, CTE, you know, it's, it's horrific, but it, you know, it's one of those it's, but they're, we don't hear, hear from them. We don't see them, but there's not a lot of shame around it, maybe because we haven't exposed it a lot, but there is so much stigma around the concept of mental health challenges. Nobody gets out of this life without a diagnosis at some point. I mean, that's just our, our big Bible of diagnostics. The DSM is like, you live long enough. You're going to see and experience things and it's going to happen to anybody in any profession. I'm more concerned if you don't have that. Like, you know, if your your favorite parent died and you're not going through a normal grieving process, I'm going to be real concerned about that. You know, we all we're all we're not getting out of this life alive without some sort of tragedy or loss in our life. And um, yeah, this is I want to tell you, I want to tell you guys kind of a a sad thing that I've realized. And it's probably been the last six months. Okay, since Lou and I started doing this podcast and stuff, we. We have had, uh, we've been lucky to have the guests that we've had. You know, we've had, again, you know, New York Times bestselling authors. We've had guys who are uh, legends in the law enforcement uh, career field. We've had actors. We've had, you know, true American heroes. But, uh, Dr. Shiley, you touched on it. You know, when you talk about peer support, uh, the thing about Lou and I, and I think we didn't realize it until way too late is we had that peer support system. One of our first guests is a guy named Chris Bayless, who is probably the shining example of what an undercover agent should be. And he worked for the ATF, but Chris, he's a guy you can, he's been there. He's done it. He's seen it. He's one of the toughest guys I know. So that's a guy that me, you know, as a, young police officer or, you know, guy who wanted to run with the big dogs. Well, Chris was the big dog. You know, and to me, he still is the big dog. He's the kind of guy that I'd puff my chest out and I'd never want him to see, oh my God, man, I can't let him see that that bothered me or right. man, I'm shook from this or whatever. But Chris Bayless and guys like Chris Bayless and Jay Dobbins and when you hear Victor Avila's story and and all these other guys. I can, I now know, and even Lou for me, I now know, even then, if I had gone to them and be like, look, guys, like Lou said, I'm fucked up. That really got to me. Those guys, they understand. They get it because they've been there. And because they've been there, they're not going to bat you away. And I, I think that was probably my biggest misconception during that time. 
you know, I'm running with the alpha dogs. I'm running with the, with the big pack. When I was in Savannah running on a team uh, called Expo, we were the big dogs of the department. The guys, if it, if it went, it bled, it blew up. We were the guys that were either doing it or around it. Those guys mm-hmm. all would understand if we sat down and talked. I mean, and I'm sure, you know, you got shitty people everywhere. I'm sure there's an exception, but how catastrophic is that? when you finally turn and try to bend somebody ear and you get the wrong ear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To have peer support members who are trained and the peer support school that we put on is such a great week of school. And the, the members that go in to be trained as essentially counselors, they come out of it going, Oh my God, I learned so much about myself and I'm so ready to go help someone else that needs it. And they, they're, they're just dying to be of service to their brothers and sisters. And it's, it's a no, really I, I, neat I, program. I, I think getting programs like that set up is essential. Dr. Scott, you said earlier, everybody wants a concrete answer. When you're talking about PTSD or you're talking about officer suicide, which is which seems to be so common now, the thing is there is no concrete answer to it. However, if we can start developing those programs where you realize, one, not only is it okay to admit that something broken up there, but... To have somebody go, okay, well, if one of my brothers or sisters comes to me and says, hey, they're broke, I got to do something to help them. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not always, and I can't believe this is coming out of my mouth, but it's not always about catching the bad guys. Sometimes it's about recouping the good guys. <laughs>